One, two, one, two. I'm recording. Hey. Ah, there he is. Oh, look. Ah, you're very well lit there, Tim. Oh, am I well lit? Yeah, you're all sort of in a lovely uh, blue wash. Oh, is it blue? Yeah. I guess that's just my computer screen glowing. Mm, it's very nice. There is some, There are some nice lights in this room, but... um. <laughs> Um, your meeting should start in a few seconds when I put this over here so I'm looking in the right direction. And then I'll go and check that my audio is going, and it is. Oh, God, you're so much better at this than I am. Um, do we swear? Oh, yeah. You can say whatever you like. You, you've done this before, though, right? Um, spoken to a <laughs> Scottish man yeah. with a duvet behind him? <laughs> it's not a duvet. It's a children's mattress. Classy. Yeah. How how is Australia today? Ah, uh, raining in Sydney. Oh. I, I can't speak for the whole of Australia. It's a fucking big place. Yeah, and uh, I gotta say, I think maybe I'm um, hitting the. I was really enjoying the lockdowny. Oh yeah, I was enjoying all of it. I mean, not the the tens of thousands of deaths, but the yeah vibe. Yeah, uh, but I'm starting to go a bit. It's starting to wear me down. Mm. I think. Well, this will perk you up. Yeah. Well, this is what you need. <laughs> it depends what you ask me and what you tell me. So we should probably start properly then, should we? Oh, what? Haven't we started? No, this isn't it. Oh, yeah, it's much better than this. David Tennant does a podcast with... Tim Minchin. So, Tim, hi. Thank you for joining me across the world. It's a pleasure. It's really, it is a pleasure. Oh, I'm, thank you. I'm thrilled. Um, well, so far I'm thrilled. You are difficult to introduce, to <laughs> summarise. Because I tend to spill drinks on people halfway through. <laughs> because you're quite difficult to professionally categorise. What, what are you currently uh, describing your job as? Um, or do you refuse to be drawn? I, I, I think I, it depends on, you know, I have a, a sort of pretentiousness dial or a, a self-congratulatory dial, and it depends on who, whether I'm trying to impress someone or annoy them. But um, I, if if someone at an airport asks me what I do, I say I'm a musician. Okay, mm. I've heard you talk about being micro-ambitious, which I thought was an interesting yeah. phrase about how you re- you you reject the idea of having a sort of unique life goal that you are travelling towards. Yeah, uh, and and about passionately I, pursuing what's right in front of you was the phrase which I quite liked. I guess I spoke about that in um, in the context of trying to give advice, which I always think is really hard because the only advice in the arts you can give anyone is be one of the lucky ones. Mm. Um, but uh, and work work bloody hard, and and under the umbrella of work bloody hard, I I have for a while reflecting on what I did um the only advice I can give is don't get distracted by the big picture because the big picture you know it's what you think you want is not what you want apart from anything else especially in the entertainment industry the fame and wealth that actually is an adoration that is driving a lot of young artists is actually not the thing that is satisfying in the end, if you get anywhere, and uh, I think you'll agree. Yeah. Um, uh, although you only find out that fame and wealth is not particularly satisfying by getting it, so it's a bit of a, a skewed sample group. But I do think, especially because of the internet and the way we consume pop culture and stuff, people think, and it's very American as well. One day I'm going to have my name up in lights. Yeah. I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be a film star. Whereas because I grew up in Perth and all those things were so far out of reach, they might as well have been science fiction. Mm. I I didn't have a choice but to concentrate hard on what I was doing. And I think people make the mistake of thinking it's Broadway or bust when actually if you just work really hard on being a fantastic singer-actor, rather than a Broadway star, then you might get to Broadway and you will have got there by concentrating on being a fantastic singer-actor. Or you might start a, a theatre company for underprivileged kids in your hometown and realise that actually that was what you were built for. But if you have Broadway or Bust as your ambition, then you 
then you're in trouble because humans hate thwarted expectations more than anything. So would you say that you're the prodigious amounts of success you've achieved in a variety of areas has happened accidentally then because you focused on one at a time? There's been a sort of... Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, without a doubt. I My ambitions... I, I hear a bunch of kids these days going, one day I want to be blah, blah, blah. I, I was... I was well into my 20s and had written four or five or six scores for theatre before I even considered the possibility that I might be able to be an artist as a job. Oh, really? But yeah, what... it's just how I was brought up. Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't think I was, I had no sense of entitlement. Mm. I do now. <laughs> well, I've developed now, I think I deserve everything, every oh. single little jot of it. And you do. But does that mean, does that rob you of having an identifiable moment of when you think, well, I've done it, I've arrived? Does that not exist for you? Or do you have those little moments on a sort of, on a... Oh, I don't know if I I have been robbed of it, but it certainly doesn't exist for me. And and it's a bit of a problem. I, I think I have trouble with my mindfulness, with my stopping and smelling the roses because... My career is a result of a sort of insatiable need to keep proving myself to nobody in particular. Right. And an an absolute love of the work and of a sort of... Because I never thought one day I'll be this or that or I never thought I'm going to have a career as big as this or that or I, I never really thought anything, I just go, oh, I can do that now. Well, I should. And... and. Now that I'm at that level, I should work harder and I could be at that level. You know, it's slightly the goalposts keep receding. Yeah. So are you, restless for, are you restless for the next thing when you're doing the current thing? Or do you manage to be very specifically focused even then? I'm pretty focused on what I'm right. doing, but, it, but I find it very hard to have a couple of weeks off after something and go, nailed that, you mm. know. I certainly would find it hard to have a year off like some people yeah. do. Well, how, how about you? Did you have a moment where you went okay i i pretty much kicked it in the dick now everything i do is a bonus no 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 i'm always waiting for it to the bottom to fall out of it without a doubt because that's uh, but then that comes like I, i'm sure like you that comes from a very i think a very specific scottish presbyterian upbringing that makes you believe you're not worthy yeah. of any of it anyway so yeah uh, but the, i are you are you a bit sick of everyone saying they've got um, uh, uh, imposter syndrome is that a bit of a boring? It I, is boring, but I absolutely identify. It feels with it. a bit humbly, yeah. deliberately humble. Yeah, oh, sure. I know we've all got it, but it's a bit boring now. You mean it's been done? Imposter syndrome's been done. We need to move yeah. on. Uh, I Get think you're all syndrome. pretending to have impo- your imposters of imposters. No, I just think I don't know if it's the most interesting way to describe it or the most. Um, informative way to describe Yeah, I think it's churlish to describe yourself in that way to a lot of people who are thinking, fuck you, I want what you've got. I'll have a bit of it. Um, Not only that, but you're, you know, someone like you saying, oh, I've got imposter syndrome. It's a bit like, well, get over it and stop being a wanker because, (laughs) because you have plenty of evidence that you are good at your craft, you know, and I know what you mean because I have imposter syndrome too, I guess, but I... But it's kind of the uh, humble, braggy side of it because I do have imposter syndrome and think I'm incredibly lucky. But I also think half my time, oh, that guy's not as good as me. I'm better than that. Mm. You know, half the time I'm going, I haven't been credited enough for how good that was. You know, sure. And sure. you only get to where where we have got, or I won't speak for you, but to where I've got. If you're you've got a bit of a chip on your shoulder and you you keep trying to get better yeah you know, you- but that yeah you're absolutely right but of course that would uh, indicate that, that those psychological conditions have to be consistent with each other which no that's right no. i think that's what i don't like about imposter syndrome because it makes it sound like that's the main thing yeah and i want everyone to go yes half the time i think i don't deserve this but half the time i'm a megalomaniacal you know like <laughs> i don't even think i'm particularly megalomaniacal for an artist but i know they're all we all humans are solipsists by nature and we we're always presenting a brand and there's a part of me that is genuinely incredibly 
grateful and genuinely humble and stuff. And there's a part of me that's a sort of furious Tasmanian devil of a thing, kind of wanting to be better and wanting to be seen to be better. And, mm. and it's a fight, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that you say that, because I was thinking about your stage persona, which is which is kind of a mixture of the two, isn't it? Certainly for, for your when you're on stage as a as a comic cabaret artist whatever mm. however you describe it there's a sort of slightly yeah. there's almost a naive quality to that sometimes isn't there and yet you will then dive into a very angry song about yeah uh child yeah, certainly abuse. in the early days i was doing a sort of wide-eyed yeah. accidentally judgmental guy these days he he's closer to me um which means he can be laconic and romantic and uh, eviscerating and angry and he can talk incredibly fast and then yeah. leave a bunch of space, which is why I love, that's why I have loved getting back to touring. I didn't tour for a long, long time and I sort of thought maybe maybe that was just a phase of my life and I wouldn't do it, but I'm so glad I got back to it because mm. you do get to just set your own rules. That It's interesting because I, I saw your last tour, as you know, and it was... It, I think it was more of a music show than before. It was less, perhaps yeah. less of a... Do you feel like you're moving away from, not abandoning comedy, but do you think you're, as you get... I suppose I'm wondering, is is the need to be funny a sort of neediness that you need less as you feel more sure of who you are? I think it's a really good question. And I think the answer is yes, basically. But for me, maybe also being funny was just how I got a career. It's like I purchased myself a career. But I basically retired and certainly I have done a lot more not comedy than comedy Mm. in my life. If you add up my musicals and my acting gigs and my uh, even within my comedy shows, even right back then, even in the orchestra show, there's the fence and, well, actually the whole thing is a bit of a scam because – over half the material is not really punchlining. Mm. I always got away with calling it comedy because people had a rollicking good time and laughed at my rants. But um, no, I, I'm a musician. I do I do really entertaining concerts mm. and always have. And I am adamant that I don't have to be funny if I don't feel like it, mm-hmm. um, which is very entitled of me. But people came away from my last tour having had just as good a time, I think. Oh, sure, without a um, doubt, yeah. I called it old songs, new songs, fuck you songs, basically because I was saying this is about songs. I'm going to say it three times in the title <laughs> and it's even going to say fuck you because the fuck you is slightly if you come expecting something and it's not what you expected, fuck you, I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Timothy David Minchin. Yes, David. Two rather biblical names for such an outspoken atheist. Yeah, very, very Old Testament. Were you brought up in a religious household? Oh, not really. My 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 dad's a surgeon and his dad's a surgeon, but they were gentle Anglicans, you know, okay. like everyone. But, you know, we were Christmas and every second Easter churchgoers. And yeah. I went to an Anglican school for 11 years where we went to chapel every day for primary school and once a week in high school. Quite a posh school, right? Yeah, posh school for Australian standards. So what was the upbringing like? So I'm a third, fourth generation private school boy. An interesting thing about being Australian and moving to England is everyone thinks you're working class because to the English, Australians are working class. Mm. I mean, they, we just are. Yeah. And it's quite... In fact, I'm uh, impervious to condescension just because I don't notice it because I'm too busy talking. But <laughs> I did eventually go, oh, you're all looking down on me. Oh, right. And, and even to the extent that people go, oh, he's such an Aussie comic. I'm like, I've never mentioned my comedy is utterly non-parochial. Yeah. It, it is sex, God and death, right? Yeah. But I did realise 
eventually that I was a novelty. You know, even when I was being invited to the embassy or to meet the fucking queen or, Mm. you know, when we did that thing with Prince Charles, Mm. I I did eventually sort of realise that the English basically see the, the Australians as working class whilst acknowledging my privilege at being able to say this. It is the case we don't have the accent reaction, the the absolute stratified assumptions based on accent and geography that you guys have. Yeah. We do not have it. Yeah. But it's lovely to come to England and to be able to talk to a plumber or a prince, literally, that no one goes, oh, did you go to a boys' private school for 11 years? Yeah. They just don't have a place for me, sure. so they don't put me in a place. It's really... A massive bonus. I think you're right, though. I think we don't have a sense of a class structure in Australia, possibly because there isn't one, or certainly not to the same extent. But it, it, I, I suppose it's we don't read the accent, so we just assume but you're your all one. But your default position is definitely you would you would the, the British would not have an, a sense of a posh Australian. No, they? you're absolutely right. No, we we yeah, you work you guys work in bars and uh, yeah. that's it, pretty much. And by the way, if I am a posh Australian, I'm a posh Australian who got their education paid for and got 500 bucks towards his first car and that's it. Yeah. You know, I have lugged bags of cement and demolished buildings and worked, washed dishes and, of course, I mean, it's, I don't know what posh means in Britain but um, there's no, you know, daddy didn't get me my first job in composing. No, no, (laughs) sure, sure. Would he have liked you to become a sergeant? Nah, he loves it. Does he? I don't know how how it's been for you, but in my case, my, my parents have, are, are not perfect, I suppose, but every year that goes by I go, oh, fuck, they got that right too. Or I go, oh, wow, they obviously really consciously decided that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, As yeah, a parent, yeah. do you find that? Yeah. You go, oh, I just assumed that was my parents' default position, but they obviously made a choice there. Yeah. That's weird, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's become that's the act of being a parent makes you re- realize that retrospectively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I just think, fuck, it's so much harder to get right than I thought. Yeah. So my daughter's thirteen now, and I'm just going, oh, I thought I was nailing it. I just, I may, maybe I've blown the whole thing. Oh no, thirteen. Oh, it's all, it's all, it's all about to go. Yeah, the next few years are. Oh, good luck. All you've got to cling on to is the remembrance of what the noise inside your head was at that age. You know, that kind of roaring. You guys just, you and George just seem like the most normal people and I feel like we're the most normal people and we've certainly made decisions that I hope are like your decisions. We've, I've made lots of career decisions to make sure I'm not, uh, that, that I've limited how much I'm in the spotlight and I'm moving back to Australia, which is obviously not the best thing for my career, but it's a good, good thing for my family and stuff. But I... I can't help but think that the worst possible thing for a child is to have a famous parent. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. just, I just think it's fundamentally shit. Do you, how, <sighs> what do you think? I don't, it's a very good question. I mean, there, obviously there are certain advantages to it, which you can uh, uh, exploit by getting them to places and getting them to see things now and again. But I can't, I mean, it's so far from the upbringing I had that I yeah. have no sense of that. George is, has a better perspective on that because her parents were actors yeah. and quite successful actors. So she was, yeah. you know, she knew what it was like to be chased down the street by photographers when she was eight. Um, Jesus. Whereas for me, that died, you know. But yes, we definitely try and protect them from that as much as possible because it's not, Yeah, it's not nice. Whether it's healthy or not, I don't know, but it's not nice. As a kid, psychologically, becoming aware that other people see your parent as different as uh, iconic in some way like I worry about what that does to your own ability to form a sense of perspective regarding your own ambitions or what you think it is to have a life a successful life or Hmm. um, I don't know I suppose it depends on the personality of your kid I guess it does and probably depends on what they end up wanting to do I just because music means so much to me, and there's so much music in our house. Yeah, but I don't want my kids to feel like like I'm not the greatest pianist in the world. But there's definitely a, a level of sort of physical ability that would be threatening. You know, you'd be it, it, you, if you watched me play in your house, you'd think, "Well, how the fuck am I going to get there?" Yeah, I 
I really want them to have music in their life. And me, Violet, Violet plays and sings, plays piano and sings, and she's she's doing fine, yeah. you know. She's sort of like I was. She's not that – she's a bit pitch lazy and I, it all came quite late to me. So it's all totally fine, but I find it very hard not to go, Vi, that's a major – you're playing a major over a <laughs> – you're yeah. singing them like it's unbearable to yeah. me, and I, and she really reacts badly to that. Quite so right I have to too. Just let them do it. Yeah. So, what was the music that you grew up loving? Was it musical theatre? I'm not even sure I was particularly into music. I don't know. I find the fact that I'm a musician extraordinarily surprising. <laughs> I really do. I mean, I, I guess I love Sergeant Pepper's, and I love JC Superstar, and I love the Big Chill soundtrack, and the twenty the 15 records my parents had. But we had this pianola. Did you call it a pianola? The Americans call it a player piano. Oh, I don't know what we um, call that. Where you pedal and the, and the oh, paper yes, roll goes Oh, yes, yes, yeah, I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think, I think we did There'll call be it. some stupid Scottish word. Yeah, there will be, yeah. I don't think we had them in Scotland. That no, sounds like an English invention. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so there was that, this 100-year-old piano, which I kind of channeled a bit when I wrote my um, TV show, Upright, right. which is about an old piano. Um, but uh, look, there was plenty of music and the, it, it, a hell of a lot of it's down to my big brother because my big brother really loved music and uh, learnt guitar and just really wanted me to learn the songs he was learning so we could play them together. Right. And then my sisters, we'd all sing harmonies and we, we really got into it. Did you have like a capacity for language? Did you were you aware that you could form oh, an yeah, argument? I was definitely that you always could... be, English and okay. from from like year four writing poem. Like I'd always get the gold star okay. and the thing on the board and the writing poems. And then somewhere in my teens, I could suddenly play blues scales really fast with my eyes closed, which I would do at parties so that someone would kiss me. Sure. Well, why else would you do it? Exactly. Yeah. So you're not do as you as indeed you you said you you were never going. I want to be Lawrence Olivier. I want to be Stephen Sondheim. You're just sort of bumbling along. At some point, it struck me that I could play piano a bit, and that people found it impressive. And I've always thought I could act a bit, but my insecurity about that was resolved. This year, or last year, you know, like no one said, oh, you're a talented actor, you should audition for this. And no one said, oh, you're a talented musician, have a scholarship. And I wasn't brought up by people who said, you're special. Mm. And so it just took a long, long time. And that length of time it took is the greatest gift I ever got. Right. Because I got to get quite good before yeah. anyone took any notice whatsoever. And I'm not beautiful. Like I. Oh, you, you are. Well, no, but it, I'm not being silly, but, like, you don't get onto neighbours if you look like me, you know, unless you're playing the bully kid or whatever. Like, right. So my friends went off to acting school and I never even auditioned. I didn't even cross my mind I'd be allowed to. Okay. And yet I'm, I'm definitely an actor now. Yeah. But saying that out loud has taken me 44 right. years, you know. But you did yeah. record an album. With your I brother, recorded a, right? an album in my lounge room in 2000. Oh, man, d don't worry. I was putting out stuff and okay. pushing hard and playing. I, I haven't had a job, a non-music job, since I was 21 or something. Right. I, I played in wedding bands and piano bars and, 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 and I've written music for youth theatre. And the fact is, regardless of where my self-belief was or you've got to realise how isolated Perth is. You reckon coming from Scotland makes you feel like you're not part of the world. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so culturally isolated. You just think the idea that maybe one day I could write some music for a theatre company in Melbourne was like the absolute height of my right. audacity of my self-belief. Sure. I thought I'm going to move to Melbourne and maybe I'll be able to write, like maybe. Yeah. I was just trying to do what I could do to make a living, to make sure Sarah's social work Salary was not the only thing we were living on. Because you'd met Sarah at university. Yeah, we met at high school, actually. But, yeah, first year uni, we got together. It, it, it's very unsure to have been with the same person all of your adult life, Yeah, more or less. Yeah. My, my life is incredibly unsure though. Sure. Uh, and maybe that's 
the secret of your success. But, but because you've been with Sarah that whole time, has she been, I mean, does she go on that journey with you or do you do one part of your life and she does, you know? Um, you know, you see some sort of partners who you can feel that they think, oh, it should be me or, right. you know, why does that idiot get all that attention? He's not, he's, he's a klutz, you know, um, or they really love it. And all of them are legitimate thoughts, and there's no doubt that Sarah should think, why does that klutz get the attention? But the the couple of times she's been really, like, uh, tongue-tied by celebrities, it's like we ended up at dinner at Sandra Bullock's house once and she sat next to her and just went absolutely numb. Right. She couldn't, she couldn't, because she comes from a bit of a pop culture upbringing, you know, she was like, so, so that sort of thing throws her, but mostly she kind of manages her sense of being out of her comfort zone by just going, I just don't care about any okay. of this. So you can, you can put her in a frock and take her out to an opening and she has a really good time and she's beautiful and stuff, but you couldn't design a person more equipped to do what we have done. Right. Like, cause it was... I mean, you have your version of this story and we'll talk about it when I interview you on sure. my podcast. I look forward but, to it. But, the, but it was a big, big change from not being able to pay the rent to, I mean, Matilda, I started writing Matilda only three years after my first Edinburgh, not even. Right. And Sarah is just like she was genetically designed to give enough of a fuck but enough not of a fuck. Yeah. And to deal with the stress of it, although in hindsight I think it was really hard. The first baby in a in a London winter with no family yeah, and me sure, off on tour sure. twelve weeks later. But but she is she's hard to impress. Stoical. She loves me. She loved me long before I lost weight and had people looking at me. <laughs> and she is profoundly aware as i am of how lucky we are yeah and she's a fucking rock star i mean how involved is she in your sort of creative journey i mean do you sort of do you go oh, i've written a new song is she the first person you play it to or i do but we have learned that it's no good oh really why is it's that? a really fucking bad idea she just she's just profoundly unimpressed <laughs> Well, there's two songs you've written that, that I, I want to know how Sarah reacts to. The first one, which I, you've talked about before, because it's an old song, was If I Couldn't Have You, where you talk about... And it's yeah, ultimately, it's, it's a love song, and it's a beautiful song. Yeah. But, but you are kind of going, look, statistically, I could be with anyone. I happen to be with you. You're fine. It's great. We're having a nice time. Yeah. But, but, you know, you yeah. could have been anyone. There's be other people that might, might be in other ways, like, yeah. you know, more suitable. I mean, how do you first showcase a song like that to her and are, and are you nervous of her reaction I, I i'm always disappointed by how unimpressed she is <laughs> I, I i'm still after 27 years think maybe she'll think this is brilliant yeah and i i wrote uh, if i didn't have you in our flat in nightingale lane in crouch end and uh she just went i just think that's just Beneath you, basically. <laughs> she went, it's just not as good. She just went, it's just, you've, you've just written a song about how you could fuck other people. It just makes you sound like, it makes you sound like a wanker. And I'm like, Dal, it's not about that. It's about the fact that love is a choice and it's more profound because it's a choice and the idea of fate diminishes just like all spirituality, all appeals to gods and it all diminishes the truth, which is it's just us. The odds on us meeting, on us existing, but meeting are infinitesimal and our constant rededication to one another is what makes love meaningful. And she's like, yeah, nah, sounds like you're just saying I could fuck other people, mate. <laughs> and how withered are you by that kind of... Uh... I, I'm pretty... Uh, her, I don't like it. I do, I play her stuff and sometimes she really likes it. But if she doesn't like it, she's learnt not to tell me that because she knows she's not necessarily right. Oh, this is now so complicated. But the layers so, that so you're she wading says, through oh, that's here. good because she knows not to say, oh, I'm not sure about that one. 
because she knows it upsets me and she knows she's not necessarily right about it, but I can tell that she's just saying she likes it. <laughs> Awful. It clearly matters. I like that. I like that it still matters. That's important. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah, but the Lonely song... Yeah, so Lonely Tonight yeah. is a song, it's a beautiful song, but it's about, well, it's about a true incident, right? It, it is, this is the thing with songs, like all art, I think, is... There's hugely personal experience in it. But obviously you go, I want to write a song about the feeling of wanting to fuck someone and not. Okay. And obviously I think Sarah and you and anyone listening would be naive to think that the number of times I've had the opportunity and desire to fuck someone and not is one. Uh, I mean, it's happened lots. Right. And Sarah knows it's happened because I tell her. Well, that's what I'm wondering, because the song is, again, ultimately a beautiful love song and a a song about how important your marriage is and how she's the most important person in your life. Um, But but you're talking about, as you say, you're talking about uh, moments when you are almost unfaithful. So how do you how do you introduce that song to Sarah? Something about that song has really hit a nerve with people and she's gone and read uh, some of the comments. And we had a chat about it today, actually, and it was a really interesting chat because she said to me, it's a really well-written song, isn't it? And oh, I'm like... And you lit oh! up. You lit I can see your face now. It you was lit up. unbelievable because she kind of listened to it through the ears of the people commenting. She read all the comments and then went back and listened to it and went, oh, right, I see... She, she was able to be a bit more objective. And, and I, I hope I'm not sounding like a dick, but I've written a lot of songs and some of them I think are shit, including my most famous song that everyone likes, the fucking Prejudice song. But I think Lonely is a well-constructed song. And so I was very, very pleased that she thought so too. But she also said, it's so interesting that people, women especially listening to that song, hear so the way dominant reaction is that they hear the romance of it. Mm. But can't they hear that you're saying to them, I want you to think of me as fuckable? (laughs) Can't they hear the desperation that you want them to think of you sexually? And it was so interesting because she was super like, and I'm like, yeah, right? Yeah. (laughs) And also we discussed the fact that my songs are, my thing is honesty, is, mm-hmm. a, is a brutal honesty. But, of course, song structure and the right rhyme and a romantic notion beats truth every time. Mm. Of course, she's right. You know. But what about, uh, what about your kids? What, I mean, because as someone who part of what you do is sharing, uh, as you say, with a, with a candidness, you share... Uh, truths about who you are and about your life do you worry maybe not now but that when they'll grow up they'll discover a version of their dad they didn't realize or yeah and you know all my bits of stand up from the old days your mouth is for cock yeah you know yeah that's a really bad punchline to say out of context i promise you that that punchline heals itself um i think they'll be all right i think i think they're okay we're pretty pretty liberal kind of household Hmm. I'd be interested in asking you about that as well, about how you parent. And I imagine you were brought up in quite a strict sort of household, just making assumptions about you. Know. I think it sounds like we may have had a quite similar upbringing in some ways. And Did you I'm, ever swear at your mother? Never. Never, no. ever did never, I swear ever, ever, in front ever. of either of my parents. And the I only, guess that's what I mean. The only time I ever saw... I ever, my, my, my parents never swore in front of me until one night yeah. my dad went to see Billy Connolly and he was staying <laughs> with me in London and he went to see him and he, and he came back and started doing bits of Billy Connolly's acts. How old were you? Oh, this was not that long ago. I was like, oh, right. my, so you'd never heard 30s. your parents swear even never, as a never, adult? never, never, never. And right. I never swore in front of them I, unless I was on stage. And then of course the character was swearing that was fine. Um, yeah. And my dad started doing bits of Billy Connolly's act in the living room. It, and, and I saw my father, who was a Church of Scotland minister, standing yeah. in my front room, roaring the word cunt. It was, <laughs> I did not know where to look. It was, it was, it, it still gives me cold chills to think about it. It, it was all wrong. Uh, it never, it didn't make any sense. Yeah.
You talked about prejudice earlier. In case you haven't heard it, dear listener, is a song about uh, prejudice against a specific minority group. But the sleight of hand in the lyrics is, at first you think it's about... As the word is spelled out, you think it's about a specific minority group and then the sleight of hand is actually it's about another. I, does that explain it? Well, it's about the G word and, and, and I rather do a rather spoiled white boy bullshit joke about th- making people think I'm going to talk about the N word. Yes. I actually came up with the idea of writing a song about gingers with the weight of a song because the idea that, that only black people can use that word for each other mm. is very pervasive and mm-hmm. very well accepted. Mm-hmm. And I thought I should write a song about how only gingers can call other gingers gingers. Yeah. And then the anagram appeared. I was like, you're joking. I was like, kept, I kept writing it <laughs> out again to, check to make it sure I times, made yeah. a mistake. But that way that you play with words and you jam them together and you rhyme them and you collide ideas, it's a very much a trademark, I'd say, of what you do. Is that always something you've had an enjoyment of and a capacity for that sort of word play. In I don't that. suppose so, but I definitely have always had a a, a problem with brevity, <laughs> uh, as I have in this podcast. I, I I have this compulsion when I have a thought about an idea to try and tie the point I'm trying to make up in a, a full picnic basket version of the idea with a ribbon on top like Mm. it's almost like an anxiety that i'm not going to be understood properly and ideally what i want to do is generate spontaneously a beautifully structured and well-concluded exemplum of the explanation of an idea yeah you know like the Pope song being the the best example of the songs I've written, the Pope song sets a trap and it is pretty hard to get out of. What do you mean? What do you mean by trap? Well, it, it, it offers up an unbelievably abusive opening, a, a crass and unsophisticated, abusive, uh, anti-papal stream of invective and abuse and then it goes about unpacking how a person might feel hearing that abuse and at the end it just says if you found it more offensive this language than the idea that the pope has been covering up child abuse then you are morally fucked Mm. and it's a it's a it's a trap it it asks people to get upset by the language and then says you're off Mm. your morality's off and i'm not saying it's a perfect argument but on its own terms it's a very well structured argument and that is my i love it because that's the bit i remember seeing seeing indeed that song you did at the o2 with a an orchestra of, I don't know, yeah. 50 people in the orchestra. 55. 55. Yeah. And at one point they are joining in, shouting, fuck you, yeah. motherfucker. And I'm th- I'm thinking, one of the members of that orchestra must be a practicing Roman Catholic. How do you introduce that? How do you go, so hi, n- well, nice to meet you, orchestra. You're yeah. all going to shout, fuck uh, well, the they Pope all had to. Well, they all had to listen to a speech. Um, I think only one orchestra member chose not to come on to it. One, one bailed. Right. Um, and uh, I think one or two didn't say those words. Okay, okay. And I obviously made it very, very clear that I completely respected that choice. Right. Obviously, you, you clearly get a thrill from kind of going there and pushing that particular envelope. But do you also get scared? you also think, I, I can't, oh, it's too... Like the bit you did in that same in that same concert, the bit you did where you've got... You, you've got oh, uh, the, Quran. the Quran and Harry Potter and, and the you can feel the audience going... Don't fuck with a Quran, Tim. You'll get shot. You know, are you are yeah. you are you getting a thrill out of being? Yeah, I'm getting a thrill, and it's it's all bullshit. Trying to be clever and wanting to be seen to be clever, and but also I'm I lie in bed at night thinking how fucked it is that we place value on A and not on B. You know, but uh, yeah, I. I partly did those things in my during my comedy years because I was looking for attention and I wanted to show that I was smart and brave. But more than anything, I felt very keenly that there was some bullshit that needed to be yeah. talked about. Yeah. 
But you, you have always had, even in, in those comedies, you had this anger as an engine of a lot of what you did. You, 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 the flip side of that was these very big-hearted, open, almost emotionally sentimental songs as well, like White Wine in the Sun that would make everyone cry and, and Not Perfect, these beautiful songs. So yeah. Has that side of you kind of emerged more? Have you allowed it out? With my last live tour, the, the game is the same. The game is to see how far you can push the audience and then heal them. Right. Always, always heal them. And that's why I had an okay career is because no one ever, and it's why I get in trouble with the right-wing press in Australia and sometimes with the right-wing press in, in England is because they see something I've done out of context and go, oh, this guy's just a polemicist. But I was never just a polemicist. Mm. I was always someone trying to give people the best night out I possibly could. Yeah. Always the primary thing is to keep people stimulated for two hours and just and make them laugh and cry and think and be a little bit like challenged and then completely relieved. And I'm mostly a live act when it comes to my my songs as opposed to my musicals and my acting and stuff because I want to trap people so that I can define the parameters of the engagement and hold them until I heal the wounds I've created. Right. So then when the RIC and Matthew Walkers did indeed go, come in and talk to us about writing Matilda, I've heard you say that you were, you were very surprised and you thought they'd got it wrong and all that, but, and maybe this is the tussle between the imposter syndrome and the ego again, but what, there must have been part of you thinking, yes, finally, finally someone's seen... This is what I've been ready for all my life. This is exactly what I'll be good at. I had written a lot of music for theatre and they yeah. didn't realise that when they asked me in. They had Did just they seen my shows right. and thought maybe that guy is interested in writing music for theatre and I'd written all this stuff for youth. And, you know, I said, I think Matthew Warchus would say, I said to him, I, I suppose you should get someone proper to do this, yeah. like someone who can write scores and stuff, but be careful because they'll fuck it up. And don't let them fuck it up. And right. these are the ways they're going to fuck them up. So the the imposter syndrome and the ego were both on display in the same breath. But did you always think, I, I, I will do this better than anyone else, so I'd better? I, I don't know if I thought I'd do it better than anyone else. I thought I if if there was a composing job I should do, it's this one, because I knew Dahl so, is so entrenched in my psyche. But... Once I realised the team I was joining, because I was last on board, I went, oh. And I remember, I'm pretty sure I said it to myself out loud, and this is a sign of my psycho personality. <laughs> I, I said to myself, if this doesn't go to the West End, it is your fault. Do not be lazy about this. Right. Because it's interesting, though, because as you're saying, you, you had sort of become a rock star, and then suddenly you're in a room... Well, you're one of many again. It's very, I mean, a big musical like that is hugely collaborative, right? Was that difficult? Did you have tensions? No, because I, ju I just couldn't have been happier. Right. Sitting around in a room talking about how to tell a story. Right. I, I've not been happier in, in the 15 years since my career took off than the, the writer's rooms of Matilda, Groundhog Day and Upright. Right. Wow. It's so great. So the collaboration is actually, you, you get a lot yeah. out of it. Fuck yeah. yeah. Don't you reckon? I mean, especially when you're a comedian, it's so narcissistic. You're sitting there going, I wonder if they're going to like this one. Oh, my God. Oh, they like it. I'm a genius. It's just like oh, sure. so yeah. but equally, up your own ass. You, it, it, you are, it is entirely narcissistic and you get to make all the decisions. So then to have to collaborate might might be rather difficult. But maybe, again, that's the, the theatre bunny in you coming out. Yeah. Oh, it's so joyous. But, of course, Matilda is enormous i mean it's like one of the biggest musicals in recent years it goes bananas it's it's a juggernaut after that isn't it you know it's on it's running in multiple countries it's touring it's going to be a movie i mean without being crass about it the, the for one of the principal yeah, creators they change, they change, they change your change life everything. right financially apart from anything else yeah um is that is there any part, part of you that kind of goes well the pension's sorted we can take the foot off the gas now the main thing is i i don't have to do anything i don't want to do yeah but uh, I have no interest in taking the foot off the gas because my favourite thing in the world is making stuff. Right. And my least favourite thing in the world is saying no to really cool shit. Yeah. Is that what the move to LA felt like? Because I, I, I presumably as it came out of Matilda, suddenly 
inevitably Hollywood comes calling and goes, come and make yeah. a movie for us. Going to LA was about um, when you get known as a comedian in England, you, you suddenly have people going, do you want to have a panel show? Yeah. I've always thought I might be able to act. And I thought if I was a presenter, that would kill my chances. The UK likes to pigeonhole people much more than yeah, that's right. Los Angeles does. And I was starting to get stopped on the street all the time and I decided I shouldn't get any more famous. Oh, right. So I thought I'm going to go behind the camera and go sit in a film studio for four years and look at drawings. I see. So you go to Hollywood and you work on this movie for how long? Four years? Four years, yeah. But I did other stuff during it. I wrote Groundhog Day. Okay. And that opened while I was in LA and I eventually did a fantastic Robin Hood movie. But then what happened? Larrikins was the movie, right? Larrikins was the movie. And then Universal Pictures bought DreamWorks and just trashed it. Uh, Two thirds finished. uh, 54 million bucks we'd spent already. There's lots of footage exists, presumably. Ah, God, you can't get it. I, I, I can't find the songs. I don't know what they did with it all. It was all on these shared servers and they just pulled the plug. Right. All these things that Hans Zimmer's studio had helped me make. And right. It's really cool. Yeah. It's a bit of a pity. Yeah. I, 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 a little depressing, presumably, to work for all that time and for it yeah. just to stop. Matilda really made me stop and think, wow, comedy's fun and I hope I can keep doing that. But making something that really impacts culture is really an honour, you know. Right. I really took that seriously. I went, Matilda, I, I have played a small role in slightly changing what was happening with musical theatre on the planet. Yeah. Just my, my weird little stupid songs, it struck me that I could actually build things. And so the, the saying yes to the film was very much a sort of, I, I'm going to be a bit more grown up and try and make stuff that, that it takes huge investment but um, but has big, long-running cultural impact. Like, I don't know, it just felt a bit more grown-up than doing gigs. Right. And I did want to try and not be away so much and I did think that comedy was breeds narcissism and insecurity and I did think I was getting stopped on the street too much. Right, right. So would you, you, you were happy to walk away? I mean, or, or were you conflicted? Conflicted right. and devastated to leave London. But that oh, was all are. part of the going back to Australia thing. So Australia 2018 was on the cards from five years. Oh, before. so despite what happened in LA, that 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 wasn't that didn't chase you out of LA. Oh, we were always coming home. Oh, okay. So America was always temporary. You don't miss it. No, n- no, we would never have thought to. And I'm not someone who's gone. One day I'm going to break America. I'm not that. I find America really difficult. Yeah, right. Um, I, I, I have beautiful American friends and I think there are as many assholes in England as there are in America and, you know, and I'm one of them to someone else. So I'm not judging anyone. Uh, but for me, oh, Hollywood, I mean, they are just cunts, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's not like they are cunts as people, but the tradition of how they work is so psychopathic. And, you know, you can talk really with passion in Britain about intention and art and, and they, just, they just think you must be joking. It's just commerce. Yeah. And like all commercial enterprises, some really great stuff gets built. Yeah, sure. I can't. I, anyway, I had a really bad experience there, but I had a, we had a wonderful time. We were really happy, actually, like in our little house in the hills. Yeah. Mm. So you go all the way around the world, you end up back in Australia. Um, yeah. Do, and that does that feel like coming home? I mean, is well, it? Well, we've never lived in Sydney before, so it was right. really tough. I think I talked about it in the live show, how hard... You know, that was that was an interesting time. I'm so spoilt and I'm so lucky. Trouble with being spoilt and lucky is you get spoilt and you get used to being lucky. And I found having four years' work discarded very hard and I found uh, Groundhog Day not going well in Broadway and the kind of – I kind of hated that the work didn't land the way I wanted it to with the audience's but the bit I can't bear is the is the bullshit games and manipulation of the press and the Tonys and all that politics and right stuff. Although 
please note that I'm quite happy when I win the thing. Sure, of course. So so it's all bullshit. And presumably Australia are delighted to have you back. Yeah. I don't know. I just get to look at the projects for what they are and and the uh, and this this TV show I made um last year or the year before is the best thing I've ever done. Right. I reckon. And you wrote that you it's were a, you starred in that you produced that. Oh, I co-wrote it and co-starred in it and co-produced it, but I was heavily involved and heavily involved in the story and I really really loved doing it and I loved that it was just a bunch of people absolutely dedicated to making the best thing they could. Right. So refreshing after Hollywood. So having all the options available to you doesn't you still have the ability to be micro ambitious, do you? You're still Oh yeah, I think so. I, I'm lucky, but I when you get to my position people are like, just attach your name to this mm. as a producer. You know, you must get all that stuff. Just attach your name to it and we'll see what happens. Doesn't mean like, anything. Doesn't mean anything. No. I'm going to I'm going to choose a project and pour my absolute heart, soul and balls into it. And then when that's finished, I'm going to do it again yeah. and then I'll be dead. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. So stop telling me to attach my fucking name to stuff. Find me another project for me to pour my balls into. Well, I hope it's a long yeah. time before you are dead because there are, there are we we need lots of your balls in many in many <laughs> projects. Yeah. I don't know. I've never said pour my balls into something. <laughs> well, go run with it. Have a t-shirt made. Coined a phrase. Yeah. It must be like the middle of the night there now. Um I very much appreciate you giving us all this time. You're a very lovely human being. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner. Next time. There's that fight downstairs and somebody just called me darling. (laughs) <laughs> this is obviously the place I'm supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs>